Section 13 of Emily of New Moon by Lucy M. Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 13. Emily and Ilse had a splendid fortnight of fun before their first fight. It was really quite a terrible fight, arising out of a simple argument as to whether they would or would not have a parlour in the playhouse they were building in Lofty John's bush. Emily wanted a parlour, and Ilse didn't. Ilse lost her temper at once, and went into a true Burnley tantrum. She was very fluent in her rages, and the volley of abusive dictionary words, which she hurled at Emily, would have staggered most of the Blaywater girls. But Emily was too much at home with words to be floored so easily. She grew angry too, but in the cool, dignified Murray way, which was more exasperating than violence. When Ilse had to pause for breath in her diatribes, Emily, sitting on a big stone with her knees crossed, her eyes black, and her cheeks crimson, interjected little sarcastic retorts that infuriated Ilse still further. Elsa was crimson too, and her eyes were pools of scintillating tawny fire. They were both so pretty in their fury that it was almost a pity they couldn't have been angry all the time. You needn't suppose, you little puling, snivelling chit, that you are going to boss me just because you live at New Moon, shrieked Elsa as an ultimatum, stamping her foot. I'm not going to boss you. I'm not going to associate with you ever again, retorted Emily, disdainfully. I'm glad to be rid of you, you proud, stuck-up, conceited, top-lofty biped, cried Ilse. Never you speak to me again, and don't you go about Blairwater saying things about me either. This was unbearable to a girl who never said things about her friends or one's friends. I'm not going to say things about you, said Emily deliberately. I am just going to think them. This was far more aggravating than speech, and Emily knew it. Ilse was driven quite frantic by it. Who knew what unearthly things Emily might be thinking about her any time she took the notion to? Ilse had already discovered what a fertile invention Emily had. Do you suppose I care what you think, you insignificant serpent? Why, you haven't any sense. I've got something then that's far better, said Emily with a maddening, superior smile. Something that you can never have, Ilse Burnley. Ilse doubled her fists as if she would like to demolish Emily by physical force. If I couldn't write better poetry than you, I'd hang myself she derided. I'll lend you a dime to buy a rope, said Emily. Ilse glared at her, vanquished. You go to the devil, she said. Emily got up and went, not to the devil, but back to New Moon. Ilse relieved her feelings by knocking the boards of their china closet down and kicking their moss gardens to pieces and departed also. Emily felt exceedingly badly. Here was another friendship destroyed. A friendship, too, that had been very delightful and satisfying. 
Ilse had been a splendid chum. There was no doubt about that. After Emily had cooled down, she went to the dormer window and cried. Wretched, wretched me! She sobbed dramatically, but very sincerely. Yet the bitterness of her break with Rhoda was not present. This quarrel was fair and open and above board. She had not been stabbed in the back. But of course she and Ilsa would never be chums again. You couldn't be chums with a person who called you a chit and a biped and a serpent and told you to go to the devil. The thing was impossible. And besides, Ilsa could never forgive her, for Emily was honest enough to admit to herself that she had been very aggravating too. Yet when Emily went to the playhouse next morning, bent on retrieving her share of broken dishes and boards, there was Ilsa skipping around, hard at work, with all the shelves back in place, the moss garden remade, and a beautiful parlour laid out and connected with the living room by a spruce arch. Hello, you. Here's your parlour, and I hope you'll be satisfied now, she said gaily. What's kept you so long? I thought you were never coming. This rather posed Emily after her tragic night, wherein she had buried her second friendship and wept over its grave. She was not prepared for so speedy a resurrection. As far as Ilse was concerned, it seemed as if no quarrel had ever taken place. Why, that was yesterday, she said in amazement, when Emily rather distantly referred to it. Yesterday and today were two entirely different things in Ilse's philosophy. Emily accepted it. She found she had to. Ilse, transpired, could no more help flying into tantrums now and then than she could help being jolly and affectionate between them. What amazed Emily, in whom things were bound to rankle for a time, was the way in which Ilse appeared to forget a quarrel the moment it was over. To be called a serpent and a crocodile one minute and hugged and darling the next was somewhat disconcerting until time and experience took the edge off it. Aren't I nice enough between times to make up for it? demanded Ilse. Dot Payne never flies into tempers, but would you like her for a chum? No, she's too stupid, admitted Emily. And Rhoda Stewart is never out of temper that you got enough of her. Do you think I'd ever treat you as she did? No, Emily had no doubt on this point. Whatever Ilse was or was not, she was loyal and true. And certainly Rhoda Stewart and Dot Payne compared to Ilse were as moonlight unto sunlight and as water unto wine, or would have been if Emily had as yet known anything more of her Tennyson than the bugle's song. You can't have everything, said Ilse. I've got Dad's temper and that's all there is to it. Wait till you see him in one of his rages. Emily had not seen this so far. She had often been down in the Burnley's house, but on the few occasions when Dr. Burnley had been home, he had ignored her save for a curt nod. He was a busy man, for whatever his shortcomings were, his skill was unquestioned, and the bounds of his practice extended far. By the sick bed, he was as gentle and sympathetic as he was brisk and sarcastic away from it. As long as you were ill, there was nothing Dr. Burnley would not do for you. Once you were well, 
he had apparently no further use for you. He had been absorbed all through July, trying to save Teddy Kent's life up at the Tansy Patch. Teddy was out of danger now and able to be up, but his improvement was not speedy enough to satisfy Dr. Burnley. One day, he held up Emily and Ilsa, who were heading through the lawn to the pond with fishing hooks and a can of fat, abominable worms, the latter manipulated solely by Ilsa, and ordered them to betake themselves up to the tansy patch and play with Teddy Kent. He's lonesome and moping. Go and cheer him up, said the doctor. Ilsa was rather loath to go. She liked Teddy, but it seemed she did not like his mother. Emily was secretly not averse. She had seen Teddy Kent but once, at Sunday school, the day before he was taken seriously ill, and she had liked his looks. It had seemed that he liked hers too, for she caught him staring shyly at her over the intervening pews several times. He was very handsome, Emily decided. She liked his thick, dark brown hair and his black-browed blue eyes, and for the first time it occurred to her that it might be rather nice to have a boy playmate too. Not a beau, of course. Emily hated the school jargon that called a boy your beau if he happened to give you a pencil or an apple and picked you out frequently for his partner in the games. Teddy's nice, but his mother is queer, Ilsa told her on their way to the tansy patch. She never goes out anywhere, not even to church, but I guess it's because of the scar on her face. They're not Blairwater people. They've only been living at the Tansy Patch since last fall. They're poor and proud and not many people visit them, but Teddy is awfully nice. So if his mother gives us some black looks, we needn't mind. Mrs. Kent gave them no black looks, though her reception was rather distant. Perhaps she, too, had received some orders from the doctor. She was a tiny creature, with enormous masses of dull, soft, silky fawn hair, dark, mournful eyes, and a broad scar running slantwise across her pale face. Without the scar, she must have been pretty, and she had a voice as soft and uncertain as the wind in the tansy. Emily, with her instinctive faculty of sizing up people she met, felt that Mrs. Kent was not a happy woman. The tansy patch was east of the disappointed house, between the Blairwater and the sand dunes. Most people considered it a bare, lonely, neglected place, but Emily thought it was fascinating. The little clapboarded house topped a small hill, over which tansy grew in a hard, flaunting, aromatic luxuriance rising steeply and abruptly from a main road. A straggling rail fence, almost smothered in wild rose bushes, bounded the domain, and a sagging, ill-used little gate gave ingress from the road. Stones were let into the side of the hill for steps up to the front door. Behind the house was a tumble-down little barn, and a field of flowering buckwheat, creamy green, sloping down to the blare water. In front was a crazy veranda, around which a brilliant band of red poppies held up their enchanted cups. Teddy was unfeignedly glad to see them, and they had a happy afternoon together. 
There was some colour in Teddy's clear olive skin when it ended, and his dark blue eyes were brighter. Mrs. Kent took in these signs greedily, and asked the girls to come back, with an eagerness that was yet not cordiality. But they had found the Tansy Patch a charming place, and were glad to go again. For the rest of the vacation, there was hardly a day when they did not go up to it, preferably in the long, smoky, delicious August evenings, when the white moths sailed over the Tansy Plantation, and the golden twilight faded into dusk and purple over the green slopes beyond, and fireflies lighted their goblin torches by the pond. Sometimes they played games in the Tansy Patch, when Teddy and Emily somehow generally found themselves on the same side, and then no more than a match for agile, quick-witted Ilsa. Sometimes Teddy took them to the barn loft, and showed them his little collection of drawings. Both girls thought them very wonderful, without knowing in the least how wonderful they really were. It seemed like magic to see Teddy take a pencil and bit of paper, and with a few quick strokes of his slim brown fingers, bring out a sketch of Ilse, or Emily, or Smoke, or Buttercup, that looked ready to speak, or meow. Smoke and Buttercup were the Tansy Patch cats. Buttercup was a chubby, yellow, delightful creature, hardly out of kittenhood. Smoke was a big Maltese and an aristocrat from the tip of his nose to the tip of his tail. There was no doubt whatever that he belonged to the cat caste of Vier de Vier. He had emerald eyes and a coat of plush. The only white thing about him was an adorable dicky. Emily thought of all the pleasant hours spent at the tansy patch. The pleasantest were those when, tired with play, they all three sat on the crazy veranda steps in the mystery and enchantment of the borderland, between light and dark, when the little clump of spruce behind the barn looked like beautiful dark phantom trees. The clouds of the west faded into grey, and a great round yellow moon rose over the fields to be reflected brokenly in the pond, where the windwoman was making wonderful woven lights and shadows. Mrs. Kent never joined them, though Emily had a creepy conviction that she was watching them stealthily from behind the kitchen blind. Teddy and Ilsa sang school ditties, and Ilsa recited, and Emily told stories. All they sat in happy silence, each anchored in some secret port of dreams, while the cats chased each other madly over the hill and through the tansy, tearing round and round the house like possessed creatures. They would spring up at the children with sudden pounces and spring as suddenly away. Their eyes gleamed like jewels, their tails swayed like plumes. They were palpitating with nervous, stealthy life. Oh, isn't it good to be alive, like this? Emily said once. Wouldn't it be dreadful if one had never lived? Still, existence was not wholly unclouded. Aunt Elizabeth took care of that. Aunt Elizabeth only permitted the visits to the Tansy Patch under protest, and because Dr. Burnley had ordered them. Aunt Elizabeth does not approve of Teddy, Emily wrote in one of her letters to her father, which epistles were steadily multiplying on the old garret sofa shelf. The first time I asked her if I might go and play with Teddy, 
She looked at me severely and said, Who is this Teddy person? We do not know anything about these kids. Remember, Emily, the Murrays do not associate with everyone. I said I am a star. I am not a Murray. You said so yourself. Dear father, I did not mean to be impertinent, but Aunt Elizabeth said I was and would not speak to me the rest of the day. She seemed to think that was a very bad punishment, but I did not mind it much. Only it is rather unpleasant to have your own family preserve a disdainful silence towards you. But since then she lets me go to the Tansy Patch, because Dr. Burnley came and told her to. Dr. Burnley has a strange influence over Aunt Elizabeth. I do not understand it. Rhoda said once that Aunt Elizabeth hoped Dr. Burnley and Aunt Laura would make a match of it, which, you know, means get married, but that is not so. Mrs. Thomas Anderson was here one afternoon to tea. Mrs. Thomas Anderson is a big fat woman, and her grandmother was a Murray, and there is nothing else to say about her. She asked Aunt Elizabeth if she thought Dr. Burnley would marry again, and Aunt Elizabeth said, no, he would not, and she did not think it right for people to marry a second time. Mrs. Anderson said, Sometimes I thought he would take Laura. Aunt Elizabeth just swept her a haughty glance. There is no use in denying it. There are times when I am very proud of Aunt Elizabeth, even if I do not like her. Teddy is a very nice boy, Father. I think you would approve of him. Should there be two peas in approve? He can make splendid pictures, and he is going to be a famous artist some day, and then he is going to paint my portrait. He keeps his pictures in the barn loft, because his mother doesn't like to see them. He can whistle just like a bird. The Tansy Patch is a very quaint place, especially at night. I love the twilight there. We always have such fun in the twilight. The wind woman makes herself small in the Tansy just like a tiny, tiny fairy, and the cats are so queer and creepy and delightful then. They belong to Mrs. Kent, and Teddy is afraid to pet them much for fear she will drown them. She drowned a kitten once, because she thought he liked it better than her. But he didn't, because Teddy is very much attached to his mother. He washes the dishes for her, and helps her in all the housework. Ilsa says the boys in school call him sissy for that but I think it is noble and manly of him. Teddy wishes she would let him have a dog, but she won't. I have thought Aunt Elizabeth was tyrannical, but Mrs. Kent is far worse in some ways. But then she loves Teddy, and Aunt Elizabeth does not love me. End of section 13 Recording by Leanne Fortune